Jen Cooper, the keeper here, ready for the next episode of the Mixed Zone Women's Soccer Podcast. This is podcast number 254. And with that number, we'll give a shout out to Norway's Ada Hegerberg. She has scored 254 goals in her 255 club appearances, which means that number does not even include international goals that she scored for Norway before she stepped away from the team. She has played with Lyon in the French League for the last five seasons, winning four UEFA Champions League titles, and she should be part of Lyon's roster for the upcoming Women's International Champions Cup tournament in North Carolina. And back to things on this side of the planet. Uh, two chats for this episode. First, I spoke with John Halloran, who covers women's soccer for American Soccer Now and the Equalizer. We talked about Chicago's huge crowd last weekend, um, how they made that happen, and, and kind of looking forward to continuing growth in women's soccer like that. And then I spoke with Julia Poe, the new beat reporter for Orlando Soccer, about the Pride's last home game, also a pretty big crowd, and Mark Skinner's plans for the very young team. Jen Cooper, the keeper here with John Halloran, um, a lonely women's World Cup traveler who made his way back from France and is trying to sell his his soccer words. So if anybody's hiring, poor John needs a job, I think. Right, John? Sure. Yeah. <laughs> sure. I'll go with that. Um <laughs> But you have you have the good fortune to be based in, in Chicago, which, uh, along with being the home of U.S. soccer and, and, and WSL, is the home of Chicago Red Stars. And they had a really big weekend this weekend. So that's, that's why I wanted to talk to you about not only the game itself, but the crowd, everything that led up to it, and what's going to happen next for, for the Red Stars. So talk about first what happened on the field, because it, w- it was a pretty good game. It was, and and I think that's uh, you know about as good of a game as, as you're likely to see in terms of the competitiveness of the two teams. North Carolina is obviously a, a long rival uh, with Chicago, and knocking them out of the playoffs a couple of times as well. So um, certainly a good game uh, from a competitiveness point of view, and it was a tight game. And North Carolina certainly created some chances, but uh, wasted a few of those, and then Mayer came up uh, big a couple of times as well. Um, but yeah, a good game. And, you know, I, I know that, uh, Jeff Kasuf had written, uh, about this a little bit on, on the equalizer talking about how it was a good advertisement as I think a lot of the games, uh, this past weekend were for the league. Yeah. It, you, you could see the higher energy level of, you know, one, the world cup players coming back, not just the Americans, but some of the other ones were returned earlier, you know, being rested and not all of the Americans being forced back into the lineup, but, some starting, some not. Um, having that boost of, you know, more people are watching. And I also think that it was planned a lot better this time around to c- compared to 2015, that everybody knew exactly when yep. the U.S. players would be returning. So I think that allowed Chicago to plan for this game in a way that maybe they hadn't been planning in 2015. So talk about what, what you know from Arnim Whistler and then the rest of the Red Stars front office, like everything that went into making this game happen, because you don't just have 70,000 people, 17,000 people just show up. That doesn't just happen. I think we like to think that it does. I think people assume that it does even in Portland, but there's a lot of work that goes into that. Yeah. And I think the, 
the number, um, you know, the announced attendance of, of 17,000, um, just to put that in context, three times higher, uh, greater, more than three times higher than any previous NWSL standalone game for the Red Stars. Um, so this wasn't like, you know, a bump. This was an eruption. Uh, when you look at that number compared to to previous to previous times, you know. To, again, for context, in 2015, when I'm covering the team um, and the games are being played at Benedictine University, the sellouts for the three weeks following uh, the World Cup were sellouts of 3,000, and that was great, and it was full, and it was energetic and loud in a way that Benedictine usually was not. But that was a crowd that was five times smaller than what we saw. Uh, this weekend in Chicago. And I think the team has done a, a couple of things. I think, you know, kind of a longer term view, you know, when you mentioned Arnhem, uh, Whistler, the owner, the decision he made a couple of years back to move the team to Toyota Park in the first place was a, was a big deal because, you know, if they were still at Benedictine and there are still a couple of teams playing at, at these very small venues, this wouldn't have been possible. Um, so, it, you know, that decision he made, which of course, you know, it costs more money to use a facility like Toyota Park than it does for a college facility. Um, and he's, uh, I think the last of the independent, the truly independent owners of, of the originals. So, you know, he's financing this, this whole project. Um, so he, he kind of took that step a couple of years ago. And then I think the big step they made in terms of this game and uh, specifically was that they went to the watch parties uh, downtown during the world cup and uh, set up a voucher system where fans um, could get in to the next red stars game. And then I, I was also told that a significant percentage of those people also bought additional tickets on top of the vouchers. So, you know, they kind of took advantage of that moment. And the idea obviously is, you know, look, these numbers are going to go back down. I don't think anybody expects there to be 17,000, you know, all the way through the end of the year. But the idea is, is if you can latch on to a percentage and get some of these people to start coming back, even a couple of times a year, uh, that's going to make a notable difference in, in terms of what they're drawing here in Chicago. Well, and you also think it just about the, the basics of that's, you know, 17,000 or, you know, maybe 15,000 email addresses that you didn't have before, right? Yep. That That's 15,000 more people who bought concessions, uh, maybe bought Chicago merchandise and are wearing it around and are more aware of what Red Stars are, what the NWSL is, um, maybe seeing players beyond the national team players of like, oh my God, I had no idea that Vanessa Bernardo was so good. You know, that that kind of thing. Or, or, or sad, sad to say, hey, I had no idea that not only does my hometown team have these four national team players, but it has Sam Kerr. Yeah. You know? um, yeah. It's because I, I think it's unrealistic um, in, in any sport to think that a World Cup bump or any kind of a, like Olympic bump or something like that is something that stays forever. The key is how does Chicago and NWSL and other clubs take everything that happened from that, take all that work and continue forward. I love hearing that at the watch parties, you could buy tickets to that game, you know, so there's no disconnect of, yeah, we'll be playing in three weeks and you can go buy a ticket online, but like, you want to go, you want to come to that game? Here, here's a ticket. 
right now. You know, I would I would like to think that at uh, SeatGeek Stadium Sunday that there were Chicago Red Stars booth where you could sign up for season tickets for 2020. You know, yeah. um, th- th- that kind of thing that you're constantly looking ahead, gathering people's information. Um, just, there's just so much potential like that. And, and I'm, I'm glad you made the point about uh, not being out at St. Benedictine. I mean, Chicago is the only NWSL team that plays in an MLS venue that is not really the controller of that MLS venue, right? Like Orlando, Orlando Pride, Orlando City, that's their their stadium. Same for Houston, same for Utah, same for Portland. That is not the case in in Chicago. And for Arnhem Whistler to make that commitment, um, and that was before the 2016 season, they did one standalone at the end of 2015 uh, to to wrap up the, the home slate, and that was the attendance number that was broken with, with, with this big crowd. And I'm sure they've done three, maybe four double headers with MLS. What I loved with the crowd Sunday, that that crowd even broke the number for the, their, their double headers with Chicago fire. So you can just say it's the largest Chicago red stars crowd ever period. You know? Um, but it's going to be interesting to see what happens moving forward into 2020 because as we've recently heard, Chicago Fire for MLS will be moving out. So talk about that. Yeah, so this is something that could be very good in in some respects, but I think there are some potential hurdles that maybe people haven't thought about. Um, the Red Stars will become the number one tenant at SeatGeek, so they'll have priority over Saturday night slots for home games, which uh, – you know, Arnhem will tell you all day long that uh, that's the prime slot to have uh, in terms of ticket sales. So, you know, that's certainly a positive. Um, but what I wonder is how the village of Benedictine is going to make up that revenue. Are they going to stop taking care of the facility? Are they going to uh, start inviting more concerts in? Um, which might have some uh, secondary effects on on the condition of the pitch. Are they going to start having high school football games uh, in there in the fall that's going to rip the grass up? So I think, you know, it's certainly beneficial to be the number one tenant um, in terms of, you know, having your pick of of time slots. But I am wondering um, what's going to happen in respect to the village's commitment to the stadium and the village's commitment to keeping the facility in the same condition for the Red Stars in the years to come, because there really, there is not another soccer specific venue in the city. And there really is not even another realistic option. Yeah. Size wise, obviously Soldier Field would be way too big and you're not going to go back to St. Benedictine. And I think it's a really interesting point that, that we don't think of very often uh, you know, I know a lot of fans are like, oh, I wish the women could be in their own facility or control their own dates. It's like, that sounds great. But if you are the primary tenant, a lot of ways that means you're picking up the burden of costs that's not the same if you're, you know, one of a couple of main tenants, you know, yeah. so that say say you want to make improvements uh, the landlord wants to make Im- improvements that, you know, that cost can be shared. You know, they, they renovate um, the concourses and that benefits everybody, 
you know, but when it's, when it's just you, they might be like, that's not worth us making that renovation. Cause it's just, you know, it's just these games and you know, that we, we might not see the money back that, that we want to see. Um, but that yeah, being said, so. I'm, I'm just, I'm happy that, that they've been at Toyota park. Well now, now see geek stadium and that they've stayed and that clearly, you know, Arnhem's committed to, to making that, making that work. Yeah. And it's, again, this is something that I think maybe he had a little bit more foresight than some of the other NWSL owners in terms of putting them in a venue that they could grow into. Um, and again, I don't think anybody is realistically expecting 17,000, um, you know, to continue for a long period of time, but you know, if they can get up at five or 6,000 consistently and sell out, um, you know, the East grandstand, that that's still terrific. That's still going to provide for a better environment. Um, and um, I, I think, you know, the other thing you mentioned earlier, uh, the awareness that you talked about, um, not only the, the Red Stars having those email addresses or ways to contact new potential fans, but just pushing the brand awareness because I hang out almost exclusively with, you know, soccer people and the percentage that, don't know the red stars exist is is mind-boggling um so there's really there's been an inability of the red stars to kind of penetrate the consciousness of the city and we may have actually seen a tipping point um in that you know this this realization oh my god i can go see julie earth i can go see Alyssa nayer i can go see sam kerr because i can guarantee most people had no idea that she was even playing in Chicago. Right. Um, and, and that when you look back to 2015, uh, cause I was talking to a few people about this, that I was like, the Chicago bump is huge, not just for what it means now, but they weren't able to do this in 2015, you know, and right. I'm glad you, I'm glad you had those numbers of sure they had a sellout, but a sellout at 3000 doesn't mean a lot. And the way that old venue was set up, even if it was sold out, you didn't see any of those people on TV because the grandstand was only on one side. You know, yeah. so, I mean, you're watching games and you're like, is somebody there? And occasionally, you know, you, you get a glimpse of what what, what was there. Um, so to have a game like that, uh, not just for Chicago, but also on ESPN2 uh, was just, that, that's, that's the kind of channel that's going to just randomly be on the big screens at, at, at bars and pubs and sport places, you know? So that, again, that, that gets that exposure that's much harder to track, but is, is just as important. I mean, one of the things that caught me off guard um, in 2015, the dash games, all of them were packaged for TV and the local channel that uh, ran all the Astros games. They would run the dash games live if it wasn't, you know, butting up against an Astros game. And, and even if they didn't run it live, they'd, they'd run it later. And usually they'd run it two or three more times later. And because it was on a sports channel. And as we know, a lot of restaurants and pubs just have those sports channels on those games would be on a lot. And it surprised me, the people that would say to me randomly, it's like, Oh yeah, I, I saw you on the dash broadcast. And I'm thinking, Face is only up there maybe five minutes of the two-hour broadcast, but it tells you that it's just on a lot of screens. Yeah. So I was really pleased to see a game like Chicago hosting North Carolina with a crowd like that and a game like that and player names like that 
so quickly after uh, the Women's World Cup because we didn't have that in 2015. Yeah, they announced an ESPN deal, but it started, I think, what, like six weeks after the World Cup ended last time around here. They were able to jump on it, you know, immediately. So finals July 7th, boom, there's a game on TV July 14th. You know, and sure, ESPN News doesn't sound that exciting, but when you can pick up that game through ESPN Plus or, hey, if you're using a VPN, you can pick it up through NWSLsoccer.com. Like, you know, there's so many more ways to watch in a way that there, there weren't before. But let's, let's go back to Chicago and, and, and the actual game. Um, talk about what it was like for Chicago to put those World Cup players back into the lineup. I mean, that's, that's got to be tough um, where, you know, players haven't been training with the team. Some have played more minutes than others in France. Um, talk about, talk about that game from that perspective. Yeah, I think, um, well, I, I'll tell you the one player, the World Cup player that I was really impressed with um, for Chicago was Davidson. Um, you know, obviously we didn't see a lot of her in the World Cup, but what has been so remarkable to me uh, kind of about her trajectory is that when I watched her in January 2018, when she first came into the team, she played a game against Denmark. And so she was playing against uh, Pernille Harder and Nadia Nadim and her fir- literally her first cap um, right. and played pretty well. And then went into the She Believes Cup and, and um, Sauerbrunn was injured in the spring of 2018. So it was Davidson and Dahlkemper and they played really well um, against, you know, some of the best teams in the world. And then in the summer of 2018, you saw a dip from Davidson. And and my personal opinion is that she'd been out of her college season, you know, for seven, eight months. Right. I don't care how much, how much training you're doing on your own, your form is going to dip. Um, she didn't have a good, uh, summer and she had a, a, a you know uh, certainly an unlucky own goal in the tournament of nations and um and i had actually asked ellis after that game like what are you going to do to keep her in form um and ellis had said at that point you know we have a plan um but obviously she she went professional early and um she came back and she was playing left back which i think is slightly out of position for her and i she thinks it's slightly out of position for her too but um she played really well and I think having a, a two-month stretch with the national team, um, you know, where she was in a daily training environment at that level really did her a lot of good. I think she could have a really strong second half of the season. I think anytime you bring, you know, Julie Ertz into your team, you're going to get better. I don't care what team right. you are, club or international. She's just, you know, she's she's as solid as they get at that number six position. Um, Nayer did a, did a nice job. I thought maybe – she came out a little slow on North Carolina's goal. Um, it was that, I don't know if you remember, but Dabinia played that really interesting ball where it, like, it went straight and then had this huge left hook on it right in behind the defense and then just kind of died. Uh-huh. Um, and Nayer didn't come, and Casey Short stopped running because she thought Nayer was going to come out for it. And then um, I can't remember who got in behind um, and, and scored on that one. Williams on that one. Okay. Um, so other than that, I thought Nayer played well. I thought Brian had a pretty tidy performance, which again, I mean, goodness, if you could get her playing back to what everybody expects of her, I mean, she's a game changer at her best. Um, 
So I thought they all played well. I think the only the only World Cup player that didn't start um, was Dunn for North Carolina, and she right. did come in late. So, you know, not only did all the big stars play, but the fact that they were there and this wasn't a 2015 where some of them are coming back two or three weeks later, um, I think is a, is a big deal. And um, I think 20, 22 out of the 23 uh, either played or were available. Yeah. Um, I think yeah. Morgan ended up sitting right and maybe Lavelle. Uh, yeah, but everybody was with their club and training, and it, yeah, it's just Carly Lloyd had an excused absence. Right. Well, and, and I think what we sometimes forget about 2015 is all the players returned to their clubs at the same time, but a few players retired immediately. A few missed the rest of the season due to injury or post World Cup surgery, and I feel like they're coming yeah. back. They're coming back a lot healthier. We don't have anybody that was just trying to last through the World Cup. You know what I'm saying? Um, right. I think I think they're all so energized by this and so focused with uh, the equal pay fight and and the won't stop watching and the and you know Budweiser's support and stuff like that that it seems like the national team as a collective is much more supportive than we've seen than be of yourself in the past. I agree. And, and, and that, that's huge. Every tweet, every mention, you know, I, I love seeing the media coverage of Megan Rapino right after the final. And so she's mentioning NWSL on CNN. She's mentioning it, you know, on MSNBC. And, and, and that, that, that's what you got to do. Um, you know, we could have a whole separate 20 minute conversation on what the league should be doing and what the league should have already been doing long okay, before. Yeah. This, this World Cup, um, but hey, when you don't have staff, you know, they can't really be doing anything. Um, but there is a new, uh, you know, director of brand, brand management that started last month. I'm excited that, you know, the Dash uh, have a new chief marketing officer to replace the outgoing person starting this week who's got a long history in soccer. Um, so, yeah, I like, I think a lot of us that have followed the game for a long time, whether it's, it's fans or media or a combination of both, I think sometimes we jump a little too quickly to, oh, well, attendance went down to 10,000. Oh, you know, or so-and-so only had this. It's like, hey, we got to look at this big picture long-term. You know, you look at Orlando Saturday night, nothing to sneeze at. Almost 10,000 yeah. people. That's great. Yeah, like, like I'm, I'm, you know, we don't need to be dissing. It's like, oh, so and so only got whatever. That's great. You know, the the key is, what do we need to do to keep those those people coming? And when I say we, that's that's the league, that's the club, that's the players, that's the fans. That's you know, I know generally it's not the media's responsibility, um, but it's the kind of thing that hey, I think the responsibility of the media is like, well, if you're going to cover it, let's cover it and make sure that you're putting in the information that, that people need to have as opposed to just the, Oh yeah, Alex Morgan said this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think, I think, you know, you're right. It's, I think women's soccer still exists in this space where the media wants the league to succeed. And, and I wouldn't say they have a responsibility to push the league, but I think most no. of us, for most of us, this is still a, a passion project of our own. 
Um, right. And that a lot of us uh, are vested in, um, you know, telling these stories at the very least. And so want, want this to continue um, to keep telling these stories, to keep pushing this, this sport where I think most of us know uh, that it can be. And it's, it's interesting to me too. And I, I was glad you brought this up, this idea of looking at the big picture, because this is just a pet peeve of mine, but you know, I covered men's soccer for a long time, and anytime you would be doing an interview with with somebody who didn't really follow the game, they would always think that every big moment was like the moment where soccer has made it. You know, um, twenty fourteen, <laughs> we, we beat Ghana. We made oh my it. god, yeah. we made it. You know, and, and it, it just it was it would just drive me absolutely crazy, right? The MLS All Stars beat Chelsea. Soccer has made it. Um, and, and I was a little annoyed after this world cup where people started saying things like that, because that's not what this is. If we look at the history of the league in 2013, the league brings in about 375,000 fans the next year, 446,000, then 454,000, 555,000, 609,000. 650,000 this season, that'll jump up again. You know, the idea is to make incremental, sustainable gains, that that these things will remain year after year after year. Um, And progress isn't always linear. It has been attendance-wise, but we know what happened in Kansas City. We know what happened in Western New York. Um, You know, that there's probably going to be more stories like that. We'll still probably see a franchise or two get relocated or, you know, change ownership. Um, But expansion will happen. um, And these numbers will grow. And I don't know if you saw the TV numbers, but the TV numbers came in and they were the highest since the 2016 final. Wonderful. There's growth. it's, It's not always going to be linear but the idea is is that if they can keep making these incremental gains and keep pushing this forward and you mentioned Budweiser too I thought okay look we can be as cynical as we want about corporate America but that ad campaign is genius that idea that we're going to be there the next day you know the day after the world and that again they probably had somebody very close to Woso write that ad for them because Good but that Lord, but that means they know what they're doing. That means they right. know what they're doing. Uh, I want I want a real sponsor that does that doesn't just assume that all the fans are twelve year old girls and then give yeah. me a, an ad that's that's really exciting for twelve year old girls. Like no, this this is a legit sports sponsor that has sponsored many leagues in different kind of sports and said you know we want to reach this market. How do we reach this market? What's the message we need to have? And and that right. was a brilliant message. Yeah. So let's wrap it up with just a, a few more thoughts because I, I'm so glad you had those uh, cumulative attendance numbers because because that's a, a great thing to track and that's the kind of thing where the league can show that to potential sponsors, show that to potential investors, franchise owners of like this is why you want to buy in. Um, you know, right. I think I think back to before Houston had an MLS team and the number being thrown around of what an MLS franchise cost was like 20 to 25 million. Now it's what? hundred million. Yeah. You know? And so it's, it's that kind of thing. It's like, we're still on the ground floor part. We still really are sure. We're in our seventh season. That's still really, really young. 
you know, um, at the end of its sixth season, MLS had to cut two teams, you know, and right. it was basically and was basically the same size that NWSL is right now. So when you put it in the larger context, like like we're on the right path. And, and I totally agree with you that we're probably going to keep seeing a lot of big changes that will feel disruptive and, you know, probably hurt some some fans' hearts. But it but it's like we got to keep an eye on on the long run. And for me, the long run is a stable, sustainable, healthy league that is constantly producing top American players for our national team. You know, it's not yeah, a reposi- like- it's not a repository for the twenty three <laughs> players who are already on the national team. Right. It it is producing more Jess McDonald's and McCall Zerbonis and you know Casey Shorts that that kind of thing. And I do think that the younger players in particular realize that because I think a lot of them have made their way to the national team through the league, so they they understand that. I think maybe a little bit more than than the last generation of players. Um, right. And. And this does listen. This this even the the U.S. Players Union will tell you that long term, this needs to get to a point where the clubs are supporting even the big stars, right? Um, instead of instead of being paid through the federation. And listen, seven right. of the eight teams in the quarterfinals were from Europe, and Europe is starting to invest in this. So, you know, this this, this Europe this has been investing this, yeah. Yeah, this needs to happen. Otherwise, you're going to see the U.S. drop off. And if that happens, that could be catastrophic because people want to see winners. People want to see stars. Well, and I saw a headline after the World Cup. You know, it's like it was great for Jamaica to make the World Cup. They scored a goal. You know, what comes next? How about a league? And I'm thinking they don't need a league. <laughs> they just they need to get the Jamaican Federation to commit X number of dollars to NWSL right. and so many roster spots. Like, like I'd love to see all of the CONCACAF nations have a league. I think that's that could be decades off. But you know, you're talking about UEFA investing. You know, it was almost a decade ago that UEFA gave a hundred thousand euros to every single one of its member associations. Um, and you can say, hey, UEFA's rich, CONCACAF's not. Well, then we can go knock on Jack Warner's door and say, hey, all those millions that you embezzled from uh, step, step a ladder, could we borrow those you know, for women's soccer? But anyway, I digress. But that we need to see investment not only from FIFA and U.S. soccer, but from the confederations, you know, that you want all your countries to be competitive you know, there, there's got to be some investment in it. You know, we understand living in North America how it, it's impractical for Canada to maybe launch its own league. It's, I think it's still pretty impractical for Jamaica to launch its own league. But it's not impractical for those federations to invest in NWSL, whether it's subsidizing players' salary or just investing and then they're given a guaranteed number of roster spots or, or something. I mean, I felt the same way right. with... Panama after qualifying last fall that Unith Bailey, age 17, having a great tournament, but where's she going to go? She's, she doesn't have the schooling to get into a college in the U.S., but what if there was a supplemental roster spot you know, for CONCACAF players that CONCACAF funded so that at least she's getting exposed to a high level of training week in, week out, and can maybe turn that into a contract somewhere else? So... Yeah. Anyway, 
that's that's probably the end of our diatribe uh, for today. But John, I want to say thank you for your continuing coverage of the Chicago Red Stars and um, an, an extra shout out for how many weeks were you in France? <laughs> More than I cared to be. Uh, five. <laughs> and I know most people think, oh, well, he was in France for five weeks. You were working in France every day for five weeks with a transportation system that really wasn't geared to helping out anybody in the Women's World Cup from, from, from what I hear. And, you know, media centers closing before you could pick up credentials and all kinds of fun stories. But uh, I know everybody that, that read your stuff probably appreciated <laughs> all that work, even if, even if they didn't realize what was going into it. Right. <laughs> and I'm sure we'll be talking again when uh, we get closer to the season and, and, and maybe even in next year as we're getting into the Olympics and talk about, you know, what the effect of the bump is later on and into next year. Definitely. Jen Cooper, the keeper here with Julia Poe, the new soccer beat writer for the Orlando Sentinel, covering, of course, the Orlando Pride, also Orlando City. Julia, welcome to NWSL coverage. (laughs) Thank you so much. Tell me a little bit about how you got into uh, working in sports, working in sports media, and how you ended up with the Orlando Sentinel. Yeah, um, I mean, I grew up a huge sports fan. I'm from Kansas City, big soccer city, big sports city in general. Um, And I knew that I wanted to be a journalist from a really young age, Uh, got pretty serious about it in high school. And then I kind of committed to doing sports reporting in college. And I was really lucky that while I was interning at the Philadelphia Inquirer, I was put on the soccer beat for about a month while I was just a college intern and I got to cover an MLS team up close and personal and kind of see what that looked like. And I fell in love with it. Uh, When I went back to school, I covered LAFC during their first two seasons. And then after graduation, I moved out here to Orlando and got the gig out here. And it's been, that's kind of been the last few months for me. It's just been mid season transitioning into, uh, learning two teams in the middle of their season. So that's been a little, a little bit of a learning curve, but it's been, it's been really wonderful. And I'm, I'm learning so much about the game through that entire process and really just getting to kind of immerse myself in both of these leagues. Well, and to add on top of coming into two clubs mid season in a city that you're new to boom, it's women's world cup time and the U S win the women's world cup again. And three of those players are on the team you're covering. So, so talk about, talk about your experience of what we like to call the world cup bump, but you as someone who's covering the game, what does that mean for you? Well, especially here in Orlando. um, I mean, this is where Alex Morgan plays. So that's just, a huge bump for the team in general. Um, But I think what's been really interesting has been seeing um, just the last month has been such a transitional process for the club in general, because yes, Alex Morgan, Ashlyn Harris, Ali Krieger from the U S team play here, but this is also where Marta plays. Uh, There's nine total players who were in the world cup who play for the pride here in Orlando. So over the last month, we've been seeing all of those players transition 
back into the roster. And that has been just a really interesting process to watch, um, to watch kind of club mentality and to watch players kind of figure themselves out as they rotate back into that. I mean, the first game that I covered here, Marta, it was her first game back from the World Cup. She hadn't even been in the States for more than a week, and she came out and just was guns blazing from the second she stepped foot on the pitch. Um, Other players have needed more time to kind of transition, make sure that they're taking care of injuries. But it's been this huge process of, you know, how do you work nine players back into your roster? And what does that mean for the players that were starting that are now trying to trying to kind of fight for that starting position. So it's been a really, it's been an interesting process on the club side. And then on the fan side, you know, it's, it's given a boost to a pride team that I think the club would say that they kind of needed that. I know that the players said that when they were playing in front last week and when they were playing in front of that, um, that big home crowd, it was kind of the extra boost that the players felt like they needed to get up over the hurdle and to pick up that home win. So I think it's something that the club has felt like they've benefited from. Um, But I think that Orlando is a city that has had a bit of a question mark hanging over their head of, okay, is this excitement and this intensity going to continue once we get a month out or two months out from the World Cup. So it's it's a really interesting transitional time, I think, for this club specifically here in Orlando. Well, and that win last weekend, not only, you know, a home win in front of the largest crowd the club has seen in, in a while, but first shutout win of the season, you know, first came back uh, in goal for Ashlyn Harris after Haley Kottmeyer has been, you know, taking taking care of that during the World Cup. Um, and a pretty narrow win, but still a win and a shutout win. So talk about talk about the game, uh, the game itself. Definitely. Um, what's kind of interesting when you mentioned that it was a narrow win with just the one one to zero margin. Um, if you talk to head coach Mark Skinner, he has said in the past that he would take a 1-0 win over some of these crazy finishes that they've had where, you know, eight goals (laughs) are being scored. Um, He's a really defensively minded coach. Uh, He wants to be coaching out of the back, to be playing out of the back line. And he, that has been his process in his first season has been kind of instilling that new style and that new element of play into the team. Um, The game itself though, I think was, it was a true reflection of the calm that comes from having your captain and your veteran goalkeeper back, having a veteran back on the back line um, with Ali Krieger. I think it was probably of the games that I've seen, it was starting to make those moves towards what Skinner is saying that he wants to see from the team as far as just their ability to play out of the back and their ability to move up and press up further and not have to play on the defensive. Um, It was a very different feeling from any of the other games that I've seen from them this season, just in that ability to kind of control the tempo and the pace and the style of play. Um, So it was, it was different. And there, there were options. There were moments where you could have, where I think that the team missed some opportunities, um, especially towards the end of the game when Claire Emsley came on for the first time that she was just acquired before the world cup. Um, So she'd never played with the team before she came in and she was doing her best to connect with Marta. And, you know, they've, 
they'd practiced twice together before. So they didn't quite have that chemistry there. But you saw moments where in the future you might see them coming away from that game with a 2-0 win or with a 3-0 win, um, just little moments that were missed. So I think overall that game was – it was still a potential game. It was still a game that showed – a lot of the growth that I know that the team wants to make and the head coach wants to make. But at the end of the day, it was a step towards that ability to possess and that ability to kind of control tempo that I know that Mark Skinner and the rest of the program has been kind of working on. So it was, it was an interesting game in that way, because you could see a lot on both sides of how they've, where they've come from and also where the team is still obviously going to be building forward. Well, and I'm glad you brought up Claire Emsley because that was a a huge signing right before the World Cup. And as you mentioned, she just joined the team. Obviously, she wasn't going to she was with Scotland during the World Cup and then, you know, had to get uh, the visa to play here. I think she's going to be a huge addition going forward. But like you mentioned, it, it, it takes a little time. You can't just practice with somebody twice and then, you know, then you're all firing on the same cylinders. Um but to see the club acquire a player like that, I think gives you a glimpse of what Mark Skinner is trying to to do. Um, it's I think it's been challenging for the Pride since they've been founded that they haven't had a lot of draft picks. They traded away a lot of draft picks over the years, um, you know, to get their initial roster going. And I, I would say this is probably the biggest draft year they've had, and we've definitely seen seen some some potential in Aaron Greening, um, Bridget Callahan, who wasn't even a draftee, but like a national team replacement player last year who's getting some more time. Abby Alinsky, mm-hmm. again, a draftee last year, but since last year rosters were smaller and Boston had, you know, contracted, like, like there's just, there's more opportunity this year with the World Cup, the bigger rosters. Um, so I'm kind of all over the place w- with this, but you know, I think we're starting to see what Orlando's going to build for for the future. Definitely, definitely. And I mean, Mark Skinner still hasn't had the opportunity to draft yet. Um, and if you ask him, I think that's probably the thing he's most excited about. Just looking forward to um, the future, his future with the club um, is. I, I think that that's been something that the team hasn't done in the past and that Skinner in particular hasn't gotten to do. And already with the acquisition of Emsley and just kind of the way that he's moving with that, I think that you can see where he's going to try to take the club in the future. It's definitely, you know, even in post game uh, this weekend, he talked about the future into the off season and into next season. Like his eyes are already set there, even though he's focusing right now, I think I think there's a lot in this club that is focused on not just this year, but the next and trying to kind of build up rather than focusing on just the present and just this moment right now. And then having a player like Marta on your roster, who we really saw struggle before the World Cup, she went her longest stretch in NWSL without a goal or an assist. But like you mentioned, coming back from the World Cup in the States, just a few days really, and then just comes out, like an animal. And I think, especially before the return of the U S players was, you know, throwing the team on her back and, and trying to make things happen. Uh, you know, they were successful uh, with their four, three win, uh, versus Washington and then go to Portland and that crazy game, that first game that was on uh, part of the ESPN slate, uh, 
you know, they're down to zero and she kind of pulls them back into the game. And then you think Aaron Greening has the, the equalizer and stoppage time and then Portland scores again. And so you, you can definitely understand Mark Skinner's attitude of, Hey, I'll take the one zero win over the crazy games where we score a lot of goals, but don't win. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and with, with, with Marta, what's really interesting to see is just, you know, her stats have been off the charts since she came back from the world cup. And a lot of the players, who came back earlier than they were hoping to. Um, you know, there's Canadians and Australians on this team who aren't happy with how, with the timing of when they exited the tournament. Um, they all came back with a fire. They all came back really ready to go. And they were, they wanted to still be in France when they were back here. And I think they took that to heart. And you can kind of see that, especially in Marta. She's, her off ball movement is just, it's different than it was before the world cup. She is putting a next step of intensity into how much she is running and how much pressure she is putting in trying to do every run at full speed and trying to time every single run so that she's, you know, on side and in a good position. And um, that's putting a lot of pressure. That's how you end up in situations where um, you know, the defenses don't know what to do because they don't know if they should be sagging back to watch for Marta or for Chi or for someone else, or if they're going to come up and, um, you know, try to guard one-on-one as tightly as they can. So it's, it's, it's a huge impact that she's making also is just in her off-ball movement. And you're seeing that with, you know, uh, Marissa Vigiano getting her first goal this weekend. Yes. A lot of that was because of the off-ball movement that Marta had been putting on all game that was just opening up space for everyone else. So that's been a huge thing she's also doing for the team that's not necessarily reflected on the stat sheet. Well, and she's certainly come back with a, a renewed energy and fervor. When, when I think about, uh, you know, the statement that she, she made in Brazilian Portuguese, you could, you know, after Brazil was eliminated, you could see how passionate she was, how upset she and the other players were. But I think she's channeled all of that into, I can't stop. I have to keep going. I have to keep fighting this fight. And even bringing the, the, dramatic lipstick color <laughs> back mm-hmm. back back to the end of cell. I remember watching that last World Cup game and I'm like, what is with that lipstick? And then read then read it doesn't move all game. It doesn't move. It stays <laughs> perfectly intact. I don't know how I have never like she needs to have every single endorsement ever given to her for her <laughs> lipstick choices because it it's just flawless all game, all press conference. It's crazy. I don't know how she does it. Well, and it's so like the color choice is so right for you can't not see this lipstick. You know, normally if you're choosing lipstick, you're choosing something that's kind of complementary to the whole look. This is all about, no, you have to see this dramatic color. And so I love that even on the, the you know, the first game that they had on ESPN Orlando at Portland, I was like, there it is. You know, <laughs> she's, yeah, she's not, that she's not letting she's up. Wearing. No, yeah. it's, it's amazing. It's, it's amazing. Now I think the challenge is going to continue for Orlando with one, you know, incorporating Allie Krieger, Alex Morgan, Ashlyn Harris back, back in the lineup in kind of your long-term, you know, you're past, past the high of winning the world cup and having a large crowd, but there's still half the season left. Um, getting some cohesion in, in the crowd 
in, in the group. I mean, I think that's always going to be a challenge when you've had a big core of your players, like you said, not just the Americans, but also Canadians, Australians, Brazilians away, and then to bring that whole group back. And of course, because you've had younger players stepping up to fill those roles where you wanted to be hungry to keep those roles. So you've got the kind of extra competition element. Uh, But I I think that's, what's going to be most interesting for me to watch the second half of the season is, is how Orlando deals with that because it was really just what, three, four games uh, for Orlando Mm -hmm. more than, than some other teams had with their, with their American players. And then, gone and a very very young roster so not only the americans coming back marta in better form claire emsley and then now these rookies and some of them i technically aren't rookies like abby Alinsky, but i'd say this is their first you know year on a full contract they've got some legitimate minutes under their belt now you know so they're going to be able to step up in a way that maybe they were struggling in april or may Exactly. Well, and, and I think the biggest focus for that entire process for the Pride is going to be their attacking front because up top, you know, you've got Alex Morgan, you've got Marta, you have Claire Emsley who brings something, all, all three of them bring something very different. But then you do, you have Chi, you have some of these young rookies, you have that variety up top. And, you know, talking to Mark Skinner, he's talked about how in a lot of ways what that gives him is this versatility in different tools and different styles of attack that he can bring. Because obviously if you start Claire Emsley and Marta up top together as the attacking two versus if you just put Alex Morgan up top on her own and try to fill in behind her with some of those other pieces, or if you're, you know, you could put Chi in up top. There's so many different things that you can do and so many different ways that he can adjust his shape and attack with different from different angles with different styles of players. Um, And all of them are very aware of that competition because like you saw this weekend, you know, the Americans were back, but it wasn't an American or even an international player who scored the game winning goal. So it's a really, it's a really interesting dynamic and an interesting process made even more interesting by the fact that now everyone's back and the team gets 20 days off before their next game. So it's this weird, they're kind of in this weird transitionary process right now. And I think the whole team would probably like to just get back on the pitch and kind of figure out what that means now. And that's a good point. I noticed that scheduling wise, I was like, okay, I get this. I guess this is part of the Orlando played more games than other teams early on, you know, so this is Mm -hmm. where that, that balance is out and that's gotta be frustrating. But I would also think that, the additional rest could really serve those World Cup players well. Definitely, definitely. I think, you know, you've seen everyone's using it in different ways. Um, Ashlyn and Allie, for instance, have been doing different uh, media junket things in New York. Uh, They're in D.C. today, I believe, doing something uh, along the same lines. Um, A lot of people are getting to visit family Alex Morgan uh, is still kind of resting her knee a little bit. She didn't play over the weekend because of it. So it's giving a lot of them, I think, time to just make sure their health is there before they get back into it. And then also it means that the Americans can go to the first victory tour game and come back without missing a game, which is positive for the club. Again, just because you're not having to worry about 
okay, they're here and then they're gone and they're here again. Um, so it smooths that out a little bit more. Um, but yeah, I think again, I've, we haven't had the chance to talk to them since the weekend because obviously they've been on rest, but I, I, I think just knowing how players work, even if they know that they should be resting and getting healthy, I think they always want to be back on the pitch and kind of just staying in rhythm. Yeah, they're definitely wired that way. And, and I'm glad you brought up Chiamo Bogagu uh, because she's had a, a pretty nice run recently. Um, and, and I'm sure she's a player who was frustrated by being so close to making a World Cup roster and not quite being on that final mm-hmm. 23 for England. But we've seen what she can do. And she's still pretty young. You know, she she's a member of that 2012 U-20 Women's National Team group that won the U-20 Women's World Cup, along with Morgan Bryan, Julie Johnston, Kelly O'Hai, Crystal Dunn. She's she's part of that crew. So I'm really looking forward to what she can bring as well, especially being able to combine again with Marta, Alex Morgan, Krieger on the flank, etc. Definitely, definitely. And I think it'll be a big, you know, talking to Chi before, um, kind of in the middle of everyone coming back. Marta was back at this point, but uh, the Americans weren't back. Uh, Claire hadn't come yet. I remember uh, she was asked if she was, you know, nervous about losing her spot, losing her place in the rotation. And she was like, "I, I can't be nervous. Like, I respect every single one of those players, but I also know what I bring and I know that I bring something different. And I think that's kind of the mentality in the team right now is that there's a very, um, there's an understanding of that competition, but I think that Mark Skinner is trying to do his best to promote the different things that each individual player brings rather than hitting each other, hitting those players against each other, if that makes sense. Um, But it's an interesting dynamic. I mean, that, fight for who gets the start up top in on the attack is I mean there's just a crazy level of talent and experience and international minutes played up top for the pride um and with all of that talent it's kind of been a big challenge of how you manage that and what you do from there well and as as we all know with NWSL it's such a competitive league it's so close even teams that we consider the weaker teams you know, like like look at Sky Blue last year, they were still in almost every game that they played. You know, some really came down to the wire. And this season, especially when we've had seven different teams on top of the standings at some point in the season, and we've still got most teams have 10, some have 11 games left to play. Uh, I think a couple have 12 left to play. Uh, you know, that's, ha- that's half your season. So, mm-hmm. so in a way, I mean, this, I remember we were referring this in, in 2015, that there were three parts of the season. There was pre-World Cup, World Cup, and then post-World Cup. And so we're hitting that post-World Cup. But unlike 2015, where the season ended, you know, within two months of the players coming back, there, there's much more season to play this time. So I'm really looking forward to, to seeing what Orlando can do. And I really appreciate you taking the time to, to, to talk Orlando Pride. Of course. Thank you. All right. Time to wrap it up with the back four. 
three of the five Women's World Cup Victory Tour dates have been set. The U.S. women will face Ireland next Saturday, August 3rd at the Rose Bowl, and then we'll play Portugal on August 29th in Philly, as well as September 3rd in Minneapolis. Two more games will be scheduled for the Victory Tour for October 3rd and October 6th. For more info, check out ussoccer.com. And the Women's International Champions Cup Tournament is coming to Cary, North Carolina next month, featuring, of course, the North Carolina Courage, plus Manchester City, Lyon, and Atletico Madrid. All teams will have their full rosters this time around, and all four of these squads feature several Women's World Cup players. You can buy tickets on Ticketmaster for the doubleheader on Thursday, August 15th, and the doubleheader on Sunday, August 18th. And it does look like all four of the matches will stream live on ESPN+. And speaking of Cary, North Carolina, tickets for the NWSL Championship game are on sale now at nwslsoccer.com slash championship. The game will be played Sunday, October 27th. And I will likely organize a women's soccer nerd event the day before, so stay tuned for details. And last but not least, if you haven't already started following my new Twitter feed, Woso Merch, check it out. That's W-O-S-O-M-E-R-C-H, Woso Merch. Um, trying to post daily links to Woso apparel, books, tickets, other gear uh, that fans love. All right, that's it for this episode. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to everyone who refers this podcast to a friend. And as always, many thanks to Sean for putting this all together. But now she's anybody's girl